Yo, what's up, everybody? Um, I just realized it's been an, um, a while since we recorded. Yeah, especially especially a free episode. So yeah. thank you all for bearing with us. Yeah, it's just been like Easter and other stuff. We're gonna get back into the swing of things. We got a good one for y'all today. Hell yeah, yeah. So um, it's another episode of Real Sonkara Hours. Real Sonkara Hours. Um, your favorite uh, black Marxist political podcast. Um, we're yeah, we do. Um, political commentary from a black left perspective um <clears throat> follow uh, in yeah so housekeeping follow us at sankara hours on twitter to stay up to date with uh new episodes and stuff like that and um to support independent black media like ours um become a patron at patreon.com slash real sankara hours again patreon.com slash real sankara hours five dollars a month Gets you bonus episodes, bonus con- content, all that good stuff. Um, if you contribute anywhere from $1 to $4 a month, that does not get you bonus episodes, but uh, we do appreciate any contribution at whatever um, you know uh, monetary level you, uh, you, uh, that you're able to afford within your means. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, because we're... we're we don't really believe in like you know charging people super extra for stuff, but yeah, five dollars a month, bonus content anywhere from one to four dollars. Uh, you're helping um, maintain the you know supporting us. So and it's it's just a token of like hey we we appreciate you even if you can't afford let's say five dollars a month for uh, bonus episodes. But um, anyway, yeah, like Peter said, we got a really dope uh, episode. We have on um, Professor Takeo Rivera and. By the way, full disclosure, like both Peter and I, Takeo is also a Stanford alum, so this is like <laughs> a triple whammy of, um, I guess, cardinal energy. Yeah, um, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> um, I, I must not think about it too much. Right. You know. <laughs> but like we're, you, you know, we um we're good alums because uh we went to Stanford and um, we rejected the ideology of uh, Bain Capital. And uh, <laughs> McKinsey, <laughs> Goldman uh, Sachs, <laughs> and, and all the terrible things that go on in the Hoover Institute. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So Takeo, you and I, we go, we go way back. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's great to have you on. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about um, uh, anti <clears throat> the rise in anti Asian hate crimes. And Takeo, I thought you'd be an excellent person to just talk about this for an hour uh episode um especially to give like some uh deeper context Mm -hmm. in terms of what's going on um rather than kind of like uh you know there's been like hot takes here and there but i think it's just it's it it will be good just to kind of do a deep dive on this so thank you uh, yeah why don't you just introduce yourself um who you are uh, because you're currently a professor now and you're also working on a book correct yeah yeah sure well first of all i just want to say thank you so much to to you and, and peter for having me um i'm you know i'm, I'm so excited y'all have started this podcast and uh, it's such a pleasure and I'm, i have so much admiration for both of you um so a little bit about me uh i am currently assistant professor of english and women's gender and sexuality studies and african-american studies 
and an affiliate for the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. Um, and um, I am currently working on a book called uh, Model Minority Masochism uh, to be released by Oxford University Press, I believe the beginning of 2022. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm also a playwright. My stuff's been staged uh, both coasts. And um, I grew up in the Bay Area, but now live in Boston. So it's a very sort of strange context. Uh, right now, literally, as we speak here in middle of April, I am trying to found Asian American Studies at Boston University. It's an interesting process. Um, so it's so, uh, but yeah, I, I, and, but I have also a lot of, um, you know, intellectual, uh, foundations in being raised by the black radical tradition as well in many respects. Um, uh, you know, Adam, you teach at Contra Costa College. I used mm -hmm. to be a student at Contra Costa College. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, before I went to Stanford. And so there's like a lot of intersections here. It's so, so cool to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, since we're talking about anti-Asian hate, can you talk about like your own, um, <clears throat> your identity and your your heritage? Because I think yeah. You, you, yeah, you have a interesting background um, when we're contextualizing it in terms of Asian American identity. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I'm half Japanese, half Filipino. Um, my family's been here since the early 20th century. So you know, uh, whereas I think a lot of Asian Americans. Um, have descended from the post-1965 waves of Asian immigration, my folks have, you know, were, were kind of old school. They, they, they immigrated sort of uh, kind of early uh, labor waves um, in the mm. beginning of the 20th century. So, uh, so, and both of my parents were actually involved in the Asian American movement, sort of the latter end in the sort of early 80s. So um, I grew up with uh, a very strong kind of ethnic studies and actually a Marxist uh, uh, childhood, actually. Nice. Nice. Yeah, so <laughs> perfect fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because... Uh, can Actually... Okay, so first question. Um, what is it... Can you define Asian American and, and be specific? Because um, one thing that often gets said is that... Uh, hey, Asians are not a monolith. Uh, I mean, you'll probably hear stories of people saying, like, um, confusing a Korean person for being Chinese or et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's why I wanted to kind of you to mention, like, your own heritage. So mm -hmm. can you explain, like, what what does it mean to be Asian American and, and what is, like, uh, this thing called Asian America. All right, that is one of my favorite questions because I think I think it's uh, it's not an easy one to answer, right? Um, but the but how I usually like to start answering the question is that the term Asian American wasn't developed in, until the late 1960s by a guy named Yuji Ichioka, Japanese American uh, activist, who was trying to find an alternative to the word Oriental which had been the previous uh, oh. word to describe Asians. And Asian American was conceived in the middle of the Third World Liberation Front. It was conceived principally as, a, as an anti-imperialist marker of solidarity with other people of color in the United States. And it principally focused on, on Japanese, Chinese, and Filipino Americans at that time. 
um, because those are the primary populations that were involved in the foundation of ethnic studies and, and, you know, these sort of like really radical left liberation movements in the Bay Area at that time. So, um, so Asian American, like the word Chicano, has a radical leftist history that a lot of people have no idea about. So I, so, but, you know, but what ended up happening over time is it gradually got more and more, um, uh, depoliticized. I think in some ways it became increasingly liberalized and eventually became adopted as the official word to, to basically describe, uh, the, the, the catch-all of all the various, uh, diasporas, uh, who reside in the America, in, in America, um, from throughout the, the, the so-called Asian continent. And that includes East Asians, that includes Southeast Asians, uh, that includes South Asians as well. Um, although the problem is, of course, is that Asian America, as it is conceived, you have kind of two sort of issues, right? So first of all, you have the greater heterogeneity as a consequence of 1965 immigration reform, basically lowering all, all the major restrictions of Asian immigration, right? So, you know, if we're talking, you know, the history of Asian immigration, you know, like Chinese folks were the very first people who were excluded on the basis of race um, in the United States, right? With the 1882 Exclusion Act. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, it's funny is that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Chinese folks would pose as Mexicans to get into the United States, right? Like, that's, that's, like that's, so, that's how it was back in the day, right? Though, so um, also, uh, just, just, I mean, it's been a while since, my, like, U.S. history classes, mm-hmm. but in the original formation of, like, the Chinese Exclusion Act, didn't they just ban women because they were afraid of, like, Chinese laborers reproducing? Oh, yeah. That's right, that's the, right. Heard, so, yeah. so, so let's actually, I mean, you know, and, and especially if we talk about Atlanta, that, that earlier act, the 1875 Page Act, is actually extremely relevant because it was banning, you know, principally Chinese women on the basis that they were all sex workers. Right. It was right. Uh, 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 so. So there was a long-standing association of Chinese women and Asian women with sexual uh, bacchanalianism, and 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 you know, which 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 goes uh. back, you know, which which we can associate with a longer discursive history of Orientalism. Yeah. Um, more broadly, right, which is which is not just inapplicable to East Asia, but also to the Middle East as well. Right. 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 Um. But but um. You know. But anyway, I was kind of giving this long-winded answer about what what Asian America is. Suffice to say that these things are in tension, and 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 I think I think mm. that you have on the one hand the political tension of whether or not Asian America still stands as as an anti as a principally anti-racist and anti-imperialist marker, um, and you have the second tension of well, okay, historically Chinese and Japanese have been certainly overrepresented. Um, as the sort of like primary Asian in this marker. And that still exists to this day. I mean, you know, one, I mean, to kind of go slightly off topic, one reason why I was not a big fan of Crazy Rich Asians <laughs> was that, you know, it was really Chinese centric. And the only South Asians who show up in the movie are like scary guards in the middle of the night. Right. So there's kind of this deliberate exclusion of South Asians from the moniker of what it means to be Asian American. Uh, or Asian, for that matter. And I don't think that's really fair, right? Especially when mm-hmm. South Asians and South Asian Americans have really been sort of critical members of, like, the Asian American coalition for decades, right? So, anyway, so, 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 suffice to say that what Asian America is, your original question, 
it is always in flux um, with radical origins, but is constantly being contested all the time by new populations. Um, and I think the heterogeneity is a great thing. The, depoliticize, the ble- depoliticization is less of a great thing. Um, and these two things are sort of, so you get sort of like a, a mixed bag. It's, it's, it's um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I guess. So then the question is, how do you get from, yeah, the third world liberation front, uh, you know, Yuri Koshiyama type era to the model minority? Yeah. And before I forget, I for, I forgot to introduce, we're already, well, whatever, people kind of are familiar with the voices, but um, yeah, I'm Adam Hudson, follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. And then... and, the, and this is Peter, I'm gone, uh, follow me or don't. Yeah. And I'm gone, Peter. But, but, but you, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, people kind of are familiar with their voices, but just, you know, I didn't want to forget that. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, answer, yeah, answer that. Like, yeah, how did it go from, uh, yeah, basically uh, third world liberation front maoism to like crazy rich agents well i think so modern minority discourse actually is kind of old um mm. we, we actually see the beginnings of model minority discourse well into the believe it or not the early 20th century even during the period of exclusion because of the fact that the primary chinese and japanese uh, immigrants who were allowed in were high excelling students mm. uh right they were kind of like the exceptions to 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 the exclusion laws in many respects um, so, so we actually do see model minority discourse emerge, um, early in the 20th century in some ways, even though it, it, it existed in parallel with yellow perilous discourse. Um, but then you have it really reconsolidate shortly after World War II with the economic success of formerly incarcerated Japanese Americans. So, you know, the, I think the, the term first really came to the fore. I forgot the name of the author, but there was this oh, one. Oh, yeah, there's like a new, uh, someone in, a, was it New York Times? It was like a famous, yeah. like, article. I forgot the name too, but yeah, there's like an article published, and it, it was exactly what you're saying that, like, look at, uh, look at how well like these Japanese have been able to rise above like internment and become super successful. And they're the model minority. Exactly. So it was just sort of this idea that, that look like even these folks who lost everything, who were incarcerated brutally were able, are able to become model American citizens. Like that's absolutely amazing. So what's interesting, right. Is like model minority discourse has one been leveraged as an anti-black thing, Right. Like, mm. like, it's like first and foremost, this is sort of sense like, well, if they can do it, why can't you do it? Too? Right. right, right. Yeah, I mean, even the phrase itself yeah. is very clearly directed towards the uh, not model minorities. Correct. Right. Correct. Right. Exactly. And and you know, I think a lot. There's a there's no you know there there are several strands of critique against the model minority thing, uh, and one of those and another strand of critique is that well, you know, with Asian Americans who are inculcated into this model minority thing, like they, they feel like there's like extra pressure to succeed too. Um, and honestly, out of the many aspects of the model minority uh, ideology, I would say that's probably the least important. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I think I think the most important really is this is, is the way in which it, it functions as this kind of like um, sort of this politics of respectability to to condemn black folks. However, I should also point out that um, in that original piece that that had sort of been in reference to Japanese Americans, um, 
it was also targeted if you can believe it towards white people it was also the sense of well white folks we we have to be careful because these 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 asian people are are succeeding more <laughs> than we are um you know they're actually demonstrating how to be model um, model americans better than 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 we are sometimes we gotta get our shit together right so 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 the model minority has also actually been a model minority towards white people too right this kind of the sense of like like the asians can be even more american than 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 the whites right so so the, so so it's kind of interesting how it gets leveraged in different ways but always in relation Right. Like yeah. The, so that the model minority is always a relational category. And so and it's always one that 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 intensifies, um, you know, capitalist ideology. It's always one that that is that is measured according to, you know, on the basis of economic success and, and, and which we also sort of uh, understand to be a measure of inclusion and assimilation and all these other things. Right. right. OK, so I found. OK, so here's the origin of the term. It was. um. <clears throat> In the January 9th, 1966 edition of the New York Times Magazine, and the author was sociologist William Peterson. That's right, yes. Yeah, and so he (laughs) described Asian Americans as, um, basically, um, his essay was titled, Success Story, Japanese American Style. And he, yeah, he said that Japanese cultures have strong work ethics and family values, which meant that is they there were, is there a culture that doesn't have a strong work ethic and family values? Right, it's because even like because that's another th- that's another thing. Like actually, just to to get on that point, Peter. Like even if you look at the history of Black America after slavery, like there were always tight knit Black families, um, and also like despite slavery, like we were able to build, you know, some fairly thriving Black communities that were undermined by white racist terrorism. Yeah. But, like, but you know so when people say like oh there's one minority who they just happen to like they emphasize work ethics and family values which is like well doesn't every isn't doesn't exist in a bunch of different cultures that uh, work hard and like how is that like (laughs) well i mean ideologically speaking right if we're talking about black folks in particular we do have the the moynihan report right Right. So, 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 <laughs> exactly. so, so looming in the consciousness of the mainstream American uh, mind, the white American mind, is this concept yeah. that the that the black family is broken. Exactly. Right? So, right. so whereas the Asian family is still intact, right, and they have mm-hmm. Confucian right. values or whatever, right? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Which is, of course, intentional, but also it is like because of the you know function of black labor as sort of a reserve army. Right, that it has to be kept in like a state of precarity, and that's always the thing. Like it, it always does go back to like political economy, and that you know the need to keep Asian Americans, um, at least as the legacy ones, like you know, in that uh, set of precarious labor was not necessary by the, the end of World War Two. So it was basically like you had to move up, or uh, you know. Or, or I guess, uh, you know, then when white, if white people see you start laying about, they might, you know, start having their little citizens council meetings or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like the, cause this actually, now that we're talking about this, I want to make a connection to <clears throat> Europe's colonization of Africa, because I think like we can see a parallel here, a parallel here that I yep. think is really instructive because I think when it comes to like the yellow peril um 
like view of Asians and then Africa is the, the dark continent, like in the, in the white, particularly like the white supremacist mind, like the thing that there was, that they feared. Um, I, I, I forgot, like there, there's some like white supremacist text. Um, I, I'll, I'll have to like look it up, but basically like one of the fears, particularly like in the 20th century was that um, East Asia would industrialize enough that it would compete with the white Western world. And they were scared of that. Hence, yellow peril, right? Like they were. Oh, and I think that kind of plays into some of like what you're talking about, Takeo, about like, oh my god, like we better be careful about these Asians because who knows, they might outsmart us in math, and who knows, they might like make you know <laughs> better cars than we do, like because right. that was no one thing in the '80s, especially like with the 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 rise of Japan and like mm-hmm. um like oh my god, like why are the Japanese making better cars than Ford? Well, I don't know, maybe because they're not fucking gas guzzlers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because because Japan doesn't need you know six you know giant giant highways where you can just get lost and drive as fast as possible. Right. Yeah. And so there's there's like that. I think always been looming in the the white American kind of consciousness in terms of how they perceive uh, like any particularly East and Southeast Asians, right? Yeah. And then. Um, uh, the other part is uh, Africa is the dark continent, like this null site with no civilization at all. And, and um, th- another fear that they had, I think, in the early 20th century was that there would be rising nationalism in Africa, particularly during Europe's colonization of Africa. So like rising nationalism in, in Africa and then like rising industrialization in East Asia. And that was something that like petrified a lot of white supremacists but i still think still animates our race discourse today um but the parallel i wanted to make like when europe colonized africa um they often used um mostly south asians not really east asians but south asians as um mid-level bureaucrats to manage their colonies um in africa like particularly the british would do it in east africa like particularly like um current day uganda and i think they would use um they would intentionally pit the two groups against each other while the europeans were united based on color and on race and were just extracting both wealth from africa and wealth from india but because like okay we'll take like a group of indians who are a little more educated and polished and you know oh these are the minorities we think are good and we'll use them as a wedge against the minorities, colonized people that we think are bad. But while those two groups are fighting amongst each other, the colonizers are like, ha, we're screwing yeah. both you guys. Yeah, and also then you don't have to worry about, or you there's there, you can ensure there's a greater level of loyalty to the colonial system if you have colonized subjects also like doing the administration. Right. You know, um, and I, I mean, that's still like kind of basically the structure today. I mean, even up to like, you know, tech companies pushing for H1B visas mm-hmm. uh, for so much, like so heavily is just because they see Asia as just this, you know, overflowing like labor colony of, you know, <laughs> yeah. educate, highly educated, technically skilled workers who unfortunately they just don't ever have any ideas. All ideas come from the West, of course. Exactly. But they, but they're very skilled, and so we can hire them, 
and they will, you know, be submissive because, you know, their entire presence on this continent is dependent on the one particular employer. That's the H-1B visa model, but also that so they can be paid less and you don't have to deal with the unruliness of, you know, uh, the typical, I guess, uh, tech programmer bro. Uh, oh. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it all <laughs> it all carries through. So actually, so the, what I was referencing earlier is it, this um, book written in 1920 by Lothrop Stoddard. Um, it's it's about like the dude was I think kind of a he was well a straight up fucking racist, but the, <laughs> um, he was he was a white supremacist, a political scientist. But the book is called "The Rising Tide of Color: The Threat Against White World Supremacy." And one of the threats <laughs> they were they were so open about it in the twenties. You really got to <laughs> yeah, hand it to them back then. Yeah, there was none of there's no like reading between the lines. They're very upfront about right. wanting to preserve white supremacy. Yeah, and one of the things that they when when he was talking about the collapse of white supremacy, one of the things he noted was um, well, population growth among non-whites, and this is actually very applicable to the capitol hill riot because mm-hmm. there was a study done recently that said most of the rioters who were there were from parts of the united states where the white population was declining and there was a rise in a non non-white population so they felt like they were losing their white social status and so so this this goes back and if you yeah. look if you listen to tucker carlson white genocide discourse yeah right exactly exactly yeah so so this goes back to like the 20s like there's a fear of like population growth among people of color non-whites um rising nationalism in colonized nations particularly in africa and then industrialization in china and japan hence the yellow peril so like basically in order for white supremacy to maintain itself um like it requires like a uh, I, I think what happens i think like sometimes when people get i think where people get confused is that when we use the term people of color, different non-white groups have a different, I guess, relationship to whiteness. And so that also means like whiteness has to maintain itself in different ways. So when it comes to white supremacy's view of Asia, their fear is rising industrialization, particularly in China and Japan. And I think because of the rise of China, I think this is, and we'll definitely get into this, like how, like, that plays into a lot of the xenophobia and anti-Asian racism. So, um, but basically my point is that like the, the, there's a long kind of history behind like the, the racism that we're seeing today. I mean, this is, this book was 1920 it's 2021 right now. So it's, you know, at least like uh, in literature, a hundred years old, but yeah, he, he was, he was very open. He was like, Hey, you know, we, Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, oh yeah, he was a eugenicist. So there you go. So that's why he was open. Yeah, about it. they they all were in the twenties. Yeah, that's right. Except that's except right. for the communists. Um, um but uh, actually, um, uh, let actually uh, one 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 question I had, or I think to to kind of get even deeper, like, because I've heard people will say, um, Asians have a proximity to whiteness and to be honest like when i first heard that i was like what like what i i still don't fully uh understand it and some people have critiqued it but 
Um, one thing, since you mentioned the Bay Area to Kale, like, one thing I have noticed, just in the Bay Area in general, and since we were talking about, like, tech and all that, like, where I grew up in Pittsburgh, California, the population is mostly uh, some mix of Blacks, Latinos, and Asians, Asians and Pacific Islanders, so, like, we have a pretty significant Tongan population, and a very significant Filipino population, so... Most of my friends, Asian friends growing up, were almost all Filipino. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and if you look at the Bay Area, a lot of Filipinos live in um, very working class areas, I would say. But then if you go to, let's say, Palo Alto or places that are like more upper middle class with more white people, yeah. the Asians you see there are usually Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. And uh, I would love for you to, to get into that about yeah. like even the sort of internal dynamics among Asian Americans, because, yeah, yeah. yeah particularly like because I think like because I've noticed just from the outside, like there is a real like um, difference when it comes to class, immigration status and sometimes yeah. even color and colorism. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, like, well, actually, to kind of loop back to what you're saying in terms of, like, you know, because I wanted to also address what you were just saying about about the kind of the the yellow parallel spheres and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I, I will I I, I should also point out that the white American left should not be left off the hook on that. (laughs) Um, I mean, dead serious, right? Like one one of the most intense, like anti-asian writers was jack london like like jack oh yeah right right right? (laughs) he was he was writing some real nasty like like techno orientalist bullshit like Mm -hmm. you know 100 years ago whatever right so anyway i just want i just want to put out there right i didn't i didn't know he was even supposed to be on the left Oh yeah, he was a socialist. Yeah, he oh. was a socialist, but he. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. That's, that's true though. No, it's. I'm glad you mentioned it to Kale. Yeah. yeah, because. Um, yeah, he was a socialist, but he also. Um, yeah, he. I mean, some people say, "Oh, he's a product of his times," but I mean, still, like, yeah, he he had some eugenicist. But yeah, yep. just uh, uh, God, there's so many and, fucking eugenicists and, during and, that time. Yeah, no, it's it's really true, and 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 you know, I think that, and it was it was largely labor groups that were that 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 created the the circumstances for the Chinese exclusion act. It was largely labor groups that that were you know you know that produced the anti-Japanese atmosphere in the 1980s that resulted in Vincent Chin getting killed, right? So what's interesting, right, is like the ways in which labor and left organizing gets co-opted by white supremacy at the drop of a hat, right? Mm-hmm. Right, like like mm-hmm. like like the American left has so repeatedly failed. Um, except for the communists, as you said. Right? Actually, mm-hmm. even then, though. Even then, the yeah, it took, a, then, it the, took a lot of work. Even then, the 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 CPUSA was in favor of internment. So so <laughs> so like so the so yeah. the white American left unfortunately keeps getting co-opted by white supremacy. I should point out though that that like one of the first advocates for Asian Americans in, in, in that I can think of, Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Lenin called out American labor leaders for for what he called um, um, chauvinism towards Asians in the United States. Yeah, well, so so you know, respect to Lenin. Just want to put that. Yeah, out. yeah. I mean, um, people people have said Lenin was you know somewhat Asian himself, um, and then of course you know there's 
Russia and its own relationship to Asia. Yeah. But oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I've, equally important is that you know, basically after all possible revolutions failed in Western Europe and the advanced capitalist countries, right? Um, you know, the the Bolshevik position was basically to focus mostly on Asia and but also Africa and Latin America as like the new centers of revolution. Yeah, right. So anyway, so I, I want to get to your question, Adam. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so the question. So the. OK, so so first of all, I would say that this is exactly why Asian American dis- data disaggregation always needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and in California, you know, fortunately, I think most institutions are pretty on board with disaggregation or, or I've already done it like decades ago. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, like, I think it was only a few years before we had arrived at Stanford. That's that student activists like pushed successfully for disaggregation to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as a consequence, like Southeast Asian admissions exploded. Right. <laughs> um, uh, in Massachusetts, that is not the case. Like Massachusetts, like we're 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 still like one category, and unfortunately, like it's like the right wing Chinese Epoch Times people who have actually been advocating, I mean, who have been pushing against data disaggregation in Massachusetts, um, because and they're calling data disaggregation racist somehow <laughs> because they think it will hurt their college admissions, which is uh, which is specifically. Oh specifically might hurt like upper middle class Chinese American admissions. However, you did mention Filipinos, Adam. Here's the complicated thing about Filipinos. And I say this as being Filipino. Um, Filipinos um, oftentimes live in, they're very heterogeneous. So a lot of times Mm, they're living mm. in in, in working class communities, oftentimes have a very kind of like working class affects, right? Um, and I think a lot of that is due to the kind of the post-colonial circumstances of Filipinos that are very unique yeah. in many respects mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to the United States. But I believe, at last count, they are the second highest income Asian Americans in the United States. Hmm. Um, higher median income than Chinese or Koreans, right? Wow. So, so, that, so that's kind of funny. Oh, and the wow. big reason for that, honestly, is because of nurses. Filipina nurse, oh, right, right, yeah. and which, which has okay. its own post-colonial origins, but has resulted in this massive remittance economy of Filipinos coming to the United States, making shit tons of money and sending it back to, to, to their families back home in the Philippines. Right. Mm. Um, but but that actually. Account- so that's what's sort of interesting is like, you know, you'll have like actually very high median incomes among Filipinos, but 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 it's not necessarily like they they're. They, you know, but they don't have the kind of like cultural yeah. dominance, which is yeah. And there isn't there isn't like any, as far as I know. I mean, everyone has their own little like bourgeoisie, but it's not in the same way that you know in Silicon Valley there is like more of an integration of other, I guess, identities into like the the ruling class in Silicon Valley compared. I feel like Filipinos. I mean, it's a, it's a good. Uh, reason as to why like median income even is not a good way to represent class i feel like also true yeah yeah and and and, and um about yeah because like people yeah like what when like the proximity to whiteness is oh, right. yeah like when people say <laughs> that about asians are they talking about the model minority yeah myth or is okay. it or is it like 
class or what is because I because I was something that the uh, confused me. Really good question. That yeah. is a really good question. So the <laughs> that's a really great question, and because <laughs> because you just spelled out the multiple ways in which that concept spells out, and they're not all identical to one another. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's why that, I was confused. That's a really good point. So sometimes we think of this culturally speaking. Right. Sometimes we think this okay. in terms of like, you know, like, I mean, honestly, like, for example, if you look at Japanese Americans, like the internment did a number on our community. Right. Like, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you had like hardcore assimilationism culturally. We're like, oh, I'm not even going to like I'm going to stay away from everything Japanese, uh, you okay. know, because because like I don't want to be associated with that, which interned me. Right. But then that kind of like switched once J- Japan became cool. Right? <laughs> so so you have the cultural level but then uh-huh. you also have the class level right like and 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 a lot of this has to do with with the ways in which our understandings of assimilation and whiteness keep fluctuating right mm, so maybe mm-hmm. we're going to think about whiteness not in terms of culture but in terms of the ways in which you're upholding a white supremacist system which includes racial capitalism right Right. right. Okay. So mm-hmm. like, so, so, you know, so if you're going to become like a mega capitalist, but maybe you're still like eating dim sum every day. I think, I don't know if he wasn't to escape from plan A, but I think they came up with the phrase Boba liberalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To describe that group of people. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. boba liberalism. Oh, my God. I had a whole conversation about this. Um, I love (laughs) the phrase boba liberalism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but, but here's the problem with with the phrase is, like, it's been co-opted by the right wing uh, to mean something totally different. (laughs) Oh, Oh, no. So so they ruined a good thing, right? Because that critique was definitely a leftist critique of mainstream upper middle class Asian Americans. Yeah, right? when I first heard that term, I was thinking of like gentrification in the Bay Area and like yes. yeah, Central liberalism. Right, liberalism. It, right, exactly. I was thinking like that was my associate. Like when I heard Asian Americans come up with that term and the type of people they were describing, I was thinking, oh, the ones who <laughs> live in San Francisco and they have like these new upper middle class tech jobs and they've priced out even they they probably even priced out even some working class Asians who've been in the Bay Area for a long yep, time. That's you right. know? It, yep, exactly. I mean I mean honestly I and like let's be real, like most Asians are sample, right? But like but I think true. I mean yeah, well, well people gonna be mad true. for saying that, but but uh, whatever, it's true. Um but I think that but 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 of course here's the thing, right? It's like right wing Asian Americans now use this to refer to, I think, like anyone who says anything social justice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, okay. oh no, yeah, yeah, you yeah. ruined a good thing, right? It's kind of, like, right? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of like our, it's like the leftist critique of like multiculturalism. And yeah. Then, but then mm-hmm. when the right wingers critique it, they they basically are critiquing it as, as white supremacists. And you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're critiquing yeah. it from well, a different angle. Right. Well, right. the right never comes up with their own ideas. They steal the lefts and just execute they always, them. Yeah, they tear. always do. They, they, we come up with the best terms, <laughs> and then they co-opt and steal them. And then we have to create new terms, and then they co-opt those and steal them again. But So I think for based on what you're saying to Kale, like, I think with the proximity to what... Because I was talking to a friend of mine who's Chinese-American. He was saying that like the way he told me was like, he was talking about um, his own upbringing in like the peninsula, which is like 
Because if anyone's aware of like the peninsula in in the Bay Area, like it's upper middle class, like white. I, I, yeah, I think it's past upper middle class at this. Yeah, point. it's yeah, it's like million dollar homes. Yeah. So I'm I'm using the Bay Area as like sort of like a sort of a case study to look at these dynamics, like these class dynamics. Because yeah, what I was because I didn't I didn't know that about Filipinos, but now now that makes sense. Because yeah, because usually again like where I grew up, working class, most of my Asian friends were filipino and or if not filipino maybe some type of southeast asian like vietnamese laotian or cambodian right Right. usually uh but then what my friend was talking about is that uh he was talking about proximity to whiteness in terms of class and the type of areas you you live in in which you're physically closer to white people sure thing yeah because like you're greater access to upper middle class jobs but then that also ties into immigration post 65 where the u.s government is allowing immigrants with who are technically quote-unquote skilled who tend to come with a little bit more which honestly it's not just applicable to asians like it also applies even to some a lot of african immigrants as well that's right you know because like so so there are like immigrants from africa who come to the united states who yeah, by race, they are black. And if, even if you look at the lineage of African-Americans, a lot of our lineage goes back to Western Central Africa. So it's a shared lineage. But in terms of U.S. immigration policy, they're very deliberate in terms of who they let in. So they let in like, you know, maybe some middle class Africans from maybe like Nigeria or some other country. And then they come here and they're going to have a different experience versus like African-Americans who've been in this country for a long time and have like a different relationship with america as a country versus like somebody who immigrated here and has like a different so basically what i'm what i'm trying to what i'm trying to get at is that like i think oftentimes when we use these terms it does help to have like a real class analysis because Uh yeah so it sounds like what you're saying when it comes to proximity to whiteness it has more to do with like looking at racial capitalism and looking at class dynamics yeah, Rather, yeah, no, I, yeah. I, you're absolutely right, and, and and you know the thing is like, now it, it's I still hesitate to sort of say that you know which of those definitions is better than the other, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But but I but if I'm to go personally, I would totally agree with you. Yeah, and and you know the the Silicon Valley Peninsula example is a real good one, right? Because like, if you think about property values you think about redlining you think about you know the ways in which again racial capitalism produces uh forms of like uh you know uh, exclusion and 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 who has power and who who's able to to have have a credit score and all that shit right like we might actually define right actually let's, let's think to critical race theory let's think about cheryl harris right right cheryl harris the way that she defines whiteness is whiteness as property, right? This notion that whiteness oh, right. and property yeah. law and whiteness and property were co-constitutive concepts from a legalistic standpoint, right? So insofar as you are property, you are closer to whiteness if, as long as we're using Harris's model. Yeah. So, so there's this kind of this way in which like insofar as Asian Americans are seen as, 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 as proper neoliberal citizens, then they are more proximal to whiteness right 
in in a way that that that, that you know if you're black your credit score is going to be like 200 points lower just immediately because of racism right right, like, right. right? Mm-hmm. so 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 yeah. like, it's so so i do think that that there is something to be said if we bring the critical th- race theory lens into the picture um so 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 yeah i think i think that's actually a very good way of thinking about proximity to whiteness right, right. is our proximity to property our proximity to the capacity yeah. to have property the, right? versus the, those who were seen as property once before yeah though though it's not just property because you know like that was the whole thing with like japanese internment was like they were all homeowners or you know they were all landed farmers or whatever it's it's property i feel like whiteness is property plus sovereignty on this continent right like you know that that the thing about asian americans uh in the you know in a white supremacist settler colonial construct is they'll there's never i feel like there's never really any like understanding or pathway to any representation of sovereignty um and that is you know, I guess that's, I mean, that's, that's why, you know, America likes to have these, all these little, uh, immigrant populations, you know, and also because liberals, like, just want more food options. Um, that's like a big, re- that's honestly a big reason, uh, or something that, that is how they view it, I feel like. But, you know, it's also like, you don't, you want all these people that will never have any path towards sovereignty. Because yeah, even like, I think you know there are contested claims among Black people in America about what could constitute like sovereignty and you know over parts of the land. But there's n- definitely nothing for that for like an Asian population, which I think is and you know I guess trying to transition that because we've been going for forty five minutes though. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, this might run so, a little long. The, so uh, the, but, the hate crimes, right? Is that what you want to do? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And also how that, how, how, like, it seems like there's an emerging, I guess, Asian subject, Asian American subjectivity, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in this kind of decade. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the response to, yeah, like the, the rate, Yes, the rise in uh, anti-Asian hate crimes and, you know, that coinciding with this new imperialist focused on Asia from the U.S. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, to yeah, to kill. Maybe, yeah, you can like so if that if that made sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So we'll transition to talking about like the the hate crimes. Like, yeah, because um, before we were before we recorded, I was yeah i was i was touched i was thinking the same thing as peter that like that there's a seems to be like a i guess like a sort of i guess like a 21st century like wave of asian american subjectivity and political activism and and i think um the horrible you know mass shooting at um in atlanta uh last month uh was sort of like a flashpoint because um yeah there's been um you know horrific uh hate crimes against asian americans um well there's, there's there ha- there's been a long history of hate crimes against asians like even before the pandemic but it mm-hmm. it's gotten more acute yes. since the pandemic because yes. you know let's be clear like we had a president who for a long time was saying covid-19 is a china virus the kung mm-hmm. flu and that mm-hmm. seeped into 
the national discourse and consciousness and um we've been seeing like more you know videos of asian americans being you know beat up and accosted and so um i was wondering yeah if you could um talk about like what what he like this recent like very acute uptick in hate yes. crimes against asian americans like what would you attribute that to because i think right what we did is i think laid out a good kind of broad context but and so now we can kind of zero in on what's happening right now absolutely all right so like the my usual answer and i i, I recently gave a talk on on this is that there are two there are two particular histories that are being sort of reactivated Mm-hmm. in this moment of the pandemic right um if you know you're right about trump you're right about about you know the uh the the the, the intensification of rhetoric around covid right um so the first of those two things that I, is is that uh, in particular chinese people have been medically scapegoated since the, the late late 19th century right um so that's an old history uh you know if we could look at for example san francisco's cubic air ordinance that specifically targeted chinese communities because they were seen as being uh you know particularly disease ridden like inherently disease ridden since, since the moment mm-hmm. they arrive on american shores right um the of, uh, and i mentioned already the the, the history of, of of like sex workers being seen as carriers of dis- venereal disease hence the page act all this other stuff right so there's this, and, and, you know, those stereotypes have persisted, right? Uh, you know, just Chinese people who, uh, eat unclean foods or any animals, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Pr- uh Prince Philip, uh, joked that, that if anything has four legs, a Cantonese will eat it, right? Um, so, uh, Prince Philip, how sad uh, he just passed away. Yeah. Uh, I just, sad. I, uh, yeah. rest in peace. Haha. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make sure, yeah, the Prince Philip who recently died. The can the Cantonese. That's very. You gotta love the British with their very specific racism. Oh yeah. Uh, you know proper right. Uh, you have to specify. <laughs> they, well, because they kept very good records when they were doing their colonialism. So they because yeah they made a point to know the difference between all the different ethnic groups so they knew which ones to arm. But yeah, go right. on. Mm-hmm. Totally good. Um, so like, <laughs> so so yeah, medical scapegoating, right? Like like we we've seen this for for a very very long time. But the other thing is obviously, as you you've already mentioned, imperialism. And I think and I think that that's one of the things that is um, oftentimes missing from a lot of American discourse on this on this question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, one thing I've, I've I've been saying recently too is like. You know, anti-Asian violence is baked into what it means to be American. If we're thinking about the fact that, like, ever since Columbus's sorry ass got lost in the Antilles, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the indigenous people have been called Indians, right? So even those who have been perceived as Asian, their extermination has been a necessary component for manifest destiny, right? So there is this Orientalism and that has infiltrated since 1492. And I think that, uh, but, uh, but obviously, you know, Asian lives are always sort of seen as, you know, kind of ex- sort of expendable, right? I, I, I think there's a yeah. way in which Black death and Asian death have different but intersecting 
relationships mm. within the American yeah. well, consciousness. Mm, I, I, yeah, that's no, that's that's the, I'm glad you brought that up. I feel like Black Death is very much, you know, in the kind of Afro pessimist view, it is this very like libidinal consumptive thing um where mm. like white you know where whiteness like understands itself in a primordial way through <laughs> black death whereas oh yeah very much and i remember this being said like during the iraq and afghanistan war like life is cheap over in asia they don't right. value human life the way we right. do oh and yeah. that mm-hmm. and that is a big reason why like the amount of just wholesale devastation rot like during the korean war for example or you know even hiroshima even dropping atomic bombs and and you know i mean even during the korean war i think famously uh truman had to fire general macarthur because he was like ready to nuke beijing like and also the vietnam vietnam war right oh just the idea that like yeah yeah, asia like that is just statistics that it doesn't mean anything no, exactly. I'm, I'm glad you dropped the Westmoreland quote because that's that, that's really that's really key, right? This idea of the the the, the Oriental not having the same values, uh, being horde like, not having the same t- like quality of soul as the white person, right? Mm-hmm. So the so 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 the Asian life um, is usually an unfortunate necessity to be killed. Right, right. I think yeah. I, I agree. Right, right, right. With like Black Death, there, there, there's a necropolitics right there. Right, there's a necropolitics right. Like, like, like Black Death is necessary for the continuation of white property. Yeah. Right. right. So, so, so that that, that that's kind of how Black Death functions. Asian Death it functions in terms of, well, it was unfortunate, but you know, it, we had to do it for our own survival. Right. right? So, yeah. so, 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 the, mm-hmm. the, 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 so, you know, with Foucault says in terms of the description of biopolitics right like like make make live let die right like asians mm. are typically on the on on the the receiving end of the let die um right and and so so you know one of those things that i like to actually say too is um i i i'm not a i mean i i i i, I, I appreciate its utility but i am critical of the actual phrasing of the hashtag stop asian hate because hmm. uh, besides the fact that grammatically it's iffy, <laughs> I'm like, wait, are the Asians doing the hating? But besides <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? I'm like, wait, 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 wait. The wait, hate, wait, the like, hate is say. Asian somehow. Right, exactly. I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, we, we need, we, like, this needs more clarity. But besides that, mm-hmm. is that I think what's actually affectively true is that Asian, anti-Asian violence does not require hate. Anti-Asian right. violence, I think, in many respects, is characterized by a casualness, um, not hatred, right? So let's talk about Atlanta. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about like this white supremacist fuckface mm-hmm. who murdered these women. And you know the thing is like the fact like let, let's do this kind of close reading. Let's like let's do some mm-hmm. literary criticism on on the alibi laid out by the Atlanta County Sheriff's Office. This notion that he was trying to say, you know, to, like this is this is a sexual, uh, you know, he's trying to, to 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 stop himself from sexual urges, right? And somehow that makes it more excusable. He was just having a bad day, you know, all, all this all, all this like. I, I, yeah, though right? so I guess I think from the perspective of perhaps like a county sheriff, it is like yeah, one bad day for 
him or one of his boys is for sure is them doing something like that yeah yep. hence hence the mm-hmm. onion piece right like oh we deeply sympathize what it's like to kill eight people on a bad day right <laughs> but like but like the other thing right is this notion that these asian women whether or not they actually were sex workers or not are perceived to be right so they had to be killed by necessity in order to retain the moral purity of this white guy, right? What we have here is moral hygiene as white supremacy. Mm. And that is enabled by a patriarchal, sexist, imperialist ideology. Yeah. That because because every one of these forms of anti-Asian violence that we inflict on a mass level, wherever they were talking you know, Korea, Vietnam. It's also accompanied by the image of the American GI coming to romance the local sex workers. Oh, God. Yeah, Miss Saigon, all that crap. Mm -hmm. Every time. Yes, true. Every time, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. from Madam... I mean, we think about Madam Butterfly imagery. We think about Miss Saigon, right? Like, wherever imperial wherever imperialism in asia occurs the image of the gi with the sex worker follows every time and so 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 the the the, the massage parlor is a, is is a local instantiation of an imperialist fantasy mm. it's as simple as that right so so you know so of course he was just having a bad day of course you know we he had i mean for from the perspective of the white male consciousness killing these asian women is the equivalent of deleting the asian porn off your computer Mm. and yeah yeah. and i'm glad i'm glad you hit on that because before uh the massacre in atlanta like there was um a lot of images like when it came to the hate crimes black people became like public enemy number one when it came to the hate crimes and um you know, like I look, I don't, I don't think anybody should be like abusing anyone by you know hate crimes. I don't care like who the offender is, like regardless of their race, like it's it's wrong on principle. But um, like in turn, like because because I think like one one thing I've noticed is that like the there's there's been like a dearth of um, there hasn't been like enough like uh, uh, objective reporting when it comes to these incidents. Like it, it seems like that like people are, are like at least some some solid reporters Asian American reporters are like um, doing their best to keep track of it because there was um there was I think there was an inter- there's a segment on NPR um someone mentioned a study by some researchers I don't know if the study's out yet but um but before before the Atlanta shooting like there were all these images of like of like you know black guys beating up um asian people and so it immediately the discourse immediately became like black people versus asians in the media but the reality on the ground here particularly here in the bay area and i'm going to say it's because like um the the bay area kind of became like the the face of it um because of what happened to the, the 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 incident of the chinatown in oakland and um by the way the chinatown in oakland if if you go there like that part of oakland um because I think, like, when, when people talk about, like, tension between b- the black community and the Asian community, I do think class matters here as well. Because that Chinatown in Oakland, like, because I've been there a lot, like, that general area. And um, since gentrification, like, 
I just noticed that the area's, like, kind of gotten even more, like, worse. Because um, there's been, like, you know, it's it's kind of rough when you go go around, go there. And then you go further east, you're in the East Oakland, like, Fruitville and East Oakland. And the East Oakland's, like, the roughest part of Oakland, right? So, um, that Chinatown is, like, not that far from, like, the rougher parts of Oakland, right? So, when the pandemic hit, um... I was like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, things are going to get worse. And by the way, like, there's been um, a rise in crime in certain areas, but it's definitely linked to the, the the economic fallout of the pandemic. Yeah. And so oftentimes, like, usually in the, when people talk about tension between the black community and Asian community, they're usually specifically, t- usually what's going on is like, there are businesses owned by usually East Asians, like Chinese and Koreans who are business owners in areas that are predominantly like poor black neighborhoods. And when you have that kind of, you know, uh, economic precarity um, and distress, it's going to create friction between two different groups of people. And I think like, you know, when people talk about their relation, that, that relationship, I think that's the thing that's hanging over, but nobody likes to talk about it. Um, and, and, and even like there are China, Chinatowns that did historically were historically redlined because, you know, they're being, they're bought, they're <laughs> yep. putting their businesses because those poor black areas of property is cheaper. So they're going to buy yep. it. Right. So, um, yep. so that's automatically going to create fric- friction. Um, but, uh, uh, um, but anyway, yeah, like, so, so the, the black people be kind of became the the enemy and then it became like this black versus asian thing rather than like an acute rise in hate crimes against asians and even before that particular video in chinatown i heard of other incident cases of hate crimes against asians committed by different races of people but yeah. they they never became the face of it they never became the the scape yeah. the scape well, well you you mentioned the epoch times and other kind of sort of extreme <laughs> right wing <laughs> and you know very much like cia connected uh mm-hmm. like media uh operations that you know s- claim to operate from an asian perspective that were fueling this um can you i don't know if either of you want to si- kind of get into that like realm of disinformation oh, that and like yeah. the china <laughs> yeah. watchers and the moonies and all the kind of different people that like hang around that uh, that relates to yeah what i'm getting on at the payroll that's relates to what i'm getting at because i noticed like the asian activists on the ground mm-hmm. in the bay area they were not calling for a black asian war they didn't they, they, were, they were not saying that yeah. it was the media that was saying it but people exactly. people on the ground especially like asian activists and black activists they didn't want this friction because it didn't benefit either community like Exactly. you know like right. yeah so but uh libby Schaff though mayor libby Schaff, she definitely stoked I remember that, that. Yeah. yeah she stoked that tension and then um <laughs> the hate crimes became a wedge to use against black lives matter calls for defunding the police That's right. and so That's yeah right. then it kind of yeah. the epoch times crowd they kind of i noticed they definitely jumped on that and amplified it with like messages of like oh black people like they're they're the main enemy like look at like go but but now i think since atlanta because the, the dude was a white guy 
like I don't know I don't I, I think I feel like that narrative is lost more salience but um I wanted to kind of give, give that Bay Area perspective because yeah. like the the Asians I know like they were not calling for like this yes. this this black Asian yeah tension yep that's right and and you know what like the thing is like we gotta give a lot of credit to both black and Asian American organizations who have been doing that solid community work yeah decades right yeah and so 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 you know i i'm just i'm real proud of the ways in which those community organizations have responded and i'll I'll give some shout outs right like let's let's give shout out to to uh to chinese progressive association let's give a shout out to the asian pacific environmental network uh you know and 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 uh and uh asian americans advancing justice uh here in boston it was actually a very similar situation we had um the asian american resource workshop and our chapter the chinese progressive association right there is there are these asian american groups who have been in who have been you know rolling deep for black lives matter too right mm-hmm. and 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 have been very clear about retaining that alliance with black folks um because it's true i mean it's like this notion of like turning black folks into the symbol of, of anti-asian hate is it's so wrong it's, it's, <laughs> it's like not even statistically true i, I know which article you're talking about it was the one that momo chang wrote yeah um, i think i think it was yeah, yeah i think yeah and i think there's some um interview in npr i think the study was like they said five percent of the offenders like the the people doing the hate crimes were black and i think like some huge so, number were white i i forgot but yeah it, so that's under yeah. representation you right. know it, and, when, and lo- when we take the quota approach to everything <laughs> exactly <laughs> but and, but you know but the, the thing is like a lot of times when it, when the black folks were attacking asians like as you were saying right it, a, lot, a lot of it had to do with more economic necessity right like like that's an easy mark right mm-hmm. that person's purse is right there yeah. right and and due to the prox as you said the proximity of the neighborhoods right that wasn't necessarily race-based right it was usually when the white folks yeah. were doing it that was race-based yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, and I think maybe because we're an hour and six in that, yeah, we can round out on some maybe, you know, historical and expiring examples of black Asian solidarity. But I think I, re- I remember this may be a little apocryphal. I mean, I, this, you know, in the, in the sort of heady days of the George Floyd protests where like so much stuff was on Twitter. But if you think back to, I mean, all of us were like, you know, in diapers or whatever in 92. But, uh, um, <laughs> you know, the discourse like Ice Cube's Black Korea, like that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. um, you know, when th- when it came around this time, it was like, no, leave those alone and like, you know, hit up Beverly Hills if you're going to if you're going to if you're so inclined to do such things. Right. And it was like there that level of communication you know wow sort of dipshit uh operatives you know try to stoke that kind of hatred because they have you know that i feel like the classic white supremacist uh fallacy or weakness is believing all the crap you say about your supposed enemies and you really think (laughs) they're that fucking stupid that's right Uh, but yeah there i mean there's been such a long history of black asian solidarity from the Bandung Conference to, you know, the way uh, Mao and the DPRK, like, supported the Black Panthers to, you know, I mean, Muhammad Ali's refusal to fight in Vietnam to even, you know, I guess, like, Dragon Ball Z 
and uh, like yeah. the Wu Tang Clan, right? Like it's all, it all, it's all on a on a continuum. If you, if you want to say no, that, that's right. And, and you know, I, I and I, I and you know, for thinking again, I, I already brought up the Yuji Ichioka history, right? Like even the term Asian American wouldn't have existed without the context of of it being in solidarity with with black folks, right? And but you know, I th- I think what's really important, right, is like to remember that solidarity and to continue that tradition of solidarity. Well, you know, I, and I also want to point out, and believe me, I am doing this all the time in my own local <laughs> environment right now. But it, it is important to keep calling out Asian American anti-blackness because it's still there. Oh my God, it's still there, and I'm dealing with it all the time, and I'm so tired of dealing. With oh no! <laughs> oh my God, that's a rant. But anyway, yeah, um, well, well, I would yeah, say yeah. like, um, and and you know, I I think it's important to to also understand, uh, and this is me kind of like this is kind of like inside baseball with Asian Americans right now, but like you know, it's it is important to understand that that you know we we cannot underestimate the the gravity of, of anti-blackness. We cannot underestimate. The gravity and the importance uh, uh, and the centrality of the Black liberation tr- struggle. I think it is actually very important for us to, to never lose sight of that, mm-hmm. um, even as we continue to combat uh, this anti-Asian violence, right? Because these things are interlinked, right? That, yeah. And and and, mm-hmm. and, I, and and so you know, so I think it's I think in order for genuine Asian American solidarity to happen, um, like you know, there has to be there has to be good faith. Um, vulnerability on both sides of this right mm-hmm. and asian america has got to do as it has been doing for decades it's got to continue looking in the mirror looking at its own soul and uh and uh, you know and, and i i think it's also i will also say that when i see black folks being like oh asians have never been here for us well that's not completely true either right so yeah. i think yeah, so, so you know i mm-hmm. i think that i think that I mean, for me, like, because I'm coming from the Asian American's perspective, I have like no tolerance for Asian American anti-blackness, right? I'm just like, I just like squash it immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like, um, but you know, but it does, but it is true. I think, I think that both communities do need to sort of like realize that both of those bigotries do nothing but aid white supremacy. Yeah, right. Exactly. And they aid racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know one thing that I think is actually really important to be like a proper socialist, right. Is for us to understand that insofar as we're combating each other, right. As long as we, we, we are thinking in terms of like, I guess one way of uh, that I like to sort of visualize it is like, is like, we have all these, we have like a grid, right? You have, you have those on top, the bourgeoisie, and those on the bottom, the various races, right? And what the bourgeoisie, the, the bourgeoisie loves nationalism because it allows people to conceptualize the groups in vertical terms rather than horizontal terms, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have more in common, like the white, the white worker is going to have more in common with the white boss than the Asian worker, right? Mm-hmm. And what and what's important for us to do is to always develop working class solidarity, um, and and people of color solidarity across those of us, so that we understand that we have way more in common. Like I got way more in common. I personally have a lot more in common with the black person who is in my structural position than the Asian guy who's making two billion dollars with like Yahoo or whatever. Yeah, and I, I right. think, yeah, yeah, and I think I'm, I'm glad you 
because we've talked about anti-blackness on this podcast and uh like i you know but because i i can see it in, in other non-white groups um but you know i don't i don't necessarily think that that has to be a barrier to uh effective coalition building as long as like i think people have an understanding of what the real source of anti-blackness is and, yeah. and how it is tied right. to white supremacy and colonialism so i think yes. usually like people people who had that understanding i never i usually don't have an issue with but i think like even to, to, you know because i think like when when black people say like oh Asians have never been there like that's why i wanted you wanted to disaggregate what it means to be asian american yeah. Because like there's always because because there's there's a there is a huge diversity in terms of the Asian American experience that I think like when it comes to maybe those who really buy into the you know racial capitalism system um, yeah maybe that solidarity would break but yeah. like then there are like okay like like a, that like a, that's why I'm proud of my own experience like if you, if working class like Southeast Asian and Filipinos like like i their interests i don't think are diametrically opposed to working class black people's interests i agree you know what i mean I and, and and even and and also like even if they're coming from a different unique struggle and cultural and ethnic background and even like a different relationship to white supremacy and colonization um their oppression's rooted in the same thing you know what yeah. i mean like there's a the, the root of their oppression points it somewhere and so it, I think as long as um, people just have a clear sight of, you know, what the, what the main root is and having a better analysis of, of what the system actually is and how it manifests, mm -hmm. then, then I think like, and also as long as people are clear about like what their goals and interests are, then you can have like real co coalitions building. And I think like, yeah, you, you know, like there, yeah. there, there are effective um, cross racial I, I think the 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 kind of coalition building i'm more interested in is more like anti-colonial coalitions because those are more effective and yes. more clear yeah yes. and and yeah. also like the kind of Afri african and asian solidarity that was in the context of bang dung that's what it was it was yep. it was a d it was a coalition based on decolonization because these are all countries that were liberating themselves from colonization and realizing hey wait a second like we're all being oppressed by colonization in different ways and we have a vested interest in creating a different world that's independent of that that's i that to me is, is like the real zenith of i, I guess you could say like poc solidarity because i think sometimes like the poc solidarity stuff going back to what you're saying to kale earlier like it gets merged into liberalism so it becomes like this yeah. representation like who gets to be the 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 good token for like the yeah the, the what <laughs> yeah know, yeah i think we all have experience of being the diversity um in the room <laughs> right uh but yeah colonialism and imperialism i think that's i'm glad you yeah. brought that up because yep. i think you know imperial like it's important to remember what the actual black political tradition is like going back to the 30s right yeah. and like mm -hmm. and how anti-imperialism and like third world liberation was always an integral part of black politics because i know now people like to 
I don't know. I, you know, it's easy. It's easy to just, you know, gobble up all the crap that, you know, CNN and the New York Times and everyone else likes to say about, you know, uh, North Korea or China and just like, like, I mean, that, that one guy who like was very much like, you know, a kind of rise and grind type who tweeted, um, like, you know, me normally, man, fuck this country. And then like me when North Korea wants to smoke. And it's like, a, I think it was a picture of, like Jules Santana, like in front of an American flag or whatever. And it's like, uh, you know, the, the very complex, uh, relationship black Americans have with America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it can be, uh, hijacked, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, for imperial purposes. Be, and I think it's important to like, not fall for that because yes, right. it doesn't do it. Like, like that just brings you, that puts you closer to America and not to like where, where the actual roots of your liberation are. And so I think like being vigilant, or just, you know, re- remembering all the lies that like, America tells about us, and then it's like you think they're, but you think they're going to be telling the truth about these countries that they have the guns pointed at, like right, you know, yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and like even like within, because I'm, I'm, in, I'm a Pan Africanist involved in different Pan African organizations, so like our ideology is definitely like we don't really buy into the American system, but I mean outside of those circles, yeah, like within the Black American collective, um. Uh, I think really Obama lulled a lot of black people into believing into America. And that can come with black people buying into uh, imperialist propaganda. And then also like, I mean, hey, you know, there are black people who are in the armed forces, just like there are other non-whites in the armed forces who are used... a lot of Filipinos. In yeah. The yeah. Who are used <laughs> yeah. as, you know, they're used as tools yeah. in service of, you know, a, a colonial and imperial machine um but obviously not to serve our interests but you know because even even in in, um you know in when europe colonized africa they use a lot of african soldiers as part of their militaries to maintain the colonial rule so you know that's and and it's it's um i think it's important for people to recognize that like um different colonized groups can you know internalize that colonial mindset and act out the interest of their colonial master against themselves and other colonized people so i think Mm -hmm. like when so i even when i see you know anti-blackness among asians i that's how i see it as like oh you're you're buying into the propaganda in the same way like yeah like there are black people who commit hate crimes against asians but they're doing the same thing that's it's as long as as long as people have that like that's the thing that's going on um then we can kind of pimp like, okay, this is where we should focus our energies. And I will say like, you know, um, I do want to like this second wave of black lives matter protests and we're getting, you know, we're getting close Mm -hmm. to hour 20. So (laughs) there's a lot of stuff we have to talk about, but um, you know, I'll make sure. Yeah. We we wrap up soon. Um, uh, I, I, this second wave of black lives matter protests, I've noticed more non-black communities of color, calling out anti-blackness in their own communities like i've noticed non-black latinos calling out anti-blackness among latinos and and that's another like whole conversation about like particularly 
slavery in Latin America and colonization in Latin America. And also, like, there are Asians in Latin America, too, speaking of which. Like, right. you know, so, right. so like, you know, that um, there's an Asian diaspora in Latin America and there's a colonial history tied to that as well, like, especially with Filipinos in Mexico, yeah. right? So um, seeing more, you know, non-black Latinos call out anti-blackness and then Asians calling out anti-blackness. Uh, I, I do think, like, you know... Um, I think that's heartening because I I do see it, it seems like people are um you know this whole fucking post Obama post Trump pandemic like I think it's got people in like a very weird state politically in terms of where to go and so I think it's it is heartening to see like uh. these sorts of co- coalitions uh uh these course yeah. yeah these sorts of analyses and oh, there that's what i meant yeah these analyses the language kind of sharpening because i can see people struggling toward like building more effective solidarity um because yeah i mean hell like looking at the state yeah, of fucking climate I, change I, I, <laughs> I agree i i think i think that i mean first of all i want to say that your formulation about the necessity of producing an anti-imperialist anti-colonial solidarity um is really key and i think that's something that we all need to come to a collective awareness of right Mm -hmm. um and say and and i think that you know this you're right that you know this kind of like this this blm second wave of you know george floyd in particular right um i think you're right and 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 we're starting to see a tipping point and i think some of it has to do with with like you know the political organizing that has happened um mm-hmm. you know i think i think the many organizers of black lives matter have been doing such important cultural work over the past decade that really should not be underestimated that also applies to the veterans of occupy it applies uh in in some ways you know in in some sectors of, of like you know even like the people who are involved with bernie um and i think and i do think that there is this um, I think I think that there was a lot of political intention and and successful messaging that we need to credit the left and and you know long long time community organizers who have been doing this hard work um, and 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 I, and I, and also I think to to a certain degree you know academic activists as well for for producing certain forms of discourse for us to be able to land on so I think that there were a lot of factors in play that were decentralized but i do think that that the turning point we're seeing is is the consequence of a lot of people's intentions and and even though the world is going to shit on so many levels especially in terms of climate change mm-hmm. i do think that that there is a lot of hope to be had in terms of like this is probably the best racial politics we've seen since the 1960s in many respects and and I think it's the consequence of us having experience and studying our history and going back and, and relearning our mistakes. And I, I think generally things are also like less sexist now <laughs> in terms of racial yeah. liberation movements, too. I think I think we're starting to have a, a better, for lack of a better word, intersectional understanding of the ways that these in, these interlocking impressions function mm-hmm. and how they play out materially, too. Yeah. So, you know, so so I do think that. I do think that that we can chalk up some victories for the left in ways in in in, in even the United States 
that uh, that are hopeful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm 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 proud of the work that people have been doing. Yeah. Do, do you have um like are you do you think that uh to kind of get close to closing do you think that there's a new wave of I guess Asian American activism like particularly yeah. since the Atlanta massacre like is yeah, that something you said absolutely mm. yeah I I I think I think that that people really woke up you know like mm. like I I I think this was our kind of our this is our 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 new Vincent Chen mm. right um and. And I have a whole chapter in my book about Vince, about Vincent Chin and the responses to it. But if I'm being honest with you, I think the politics that have emerged in the last month are actually more impressive than the politics that emerged from Vincent Chin's killing. Mm. Um, because I think that 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 the politics that emerged from Chin's killing were still ultimately grounded in a lot of respectability stuff. We're still ultimately grounded in like you know um, a lot of liberalism. I think that the I think what we, we we see now is very very heterogeneous. We're seeing a lot of liberal responses, but we're also seeing a lot of left responses. And because it's happening so soon after George Floyd, we have, you know, this is an example of like the ways in which Asian Americans need to understand that 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 black that the black liberation struggle is only helping us, right? Is that we have a discursive infrastructure with which we can understand this violence. Mm-hmm. And we and we can see the parallels plain as day, and we can see the police fucking us over in a similar way plain as day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. like you yeah. know, if the police are going to be saying this fucker had a bad day, well, shit, we might as well keep defunding these, these <laughs> yeah, motherfuckers. Right. And on that note, I think it's probably point to close. Yeah, on. totally. Uh, did you have something to say, Peter? Um, I, not really. I mean, most of all that was said, other than that, I dislike the word hope. Obama killed it for me. But, (laughs) but I, what I, what I, the word I tend to be coming back to is resolve. Um, I think resolve as is deepening among people who understand, like they have a personal stake in a radically different future than the one we're trending towards for the 21st century. Um, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. And so, but but yeah, I think that's that's basically it. It's, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, totally. It could have went longer, but yeah, we try to keep these uh, episodes as focused as possible, as much as possible. But um, these days, at least. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, uh, do you want to plug your book again, to, or to Kale? So you. So what? Sure. Yeah. The, so the the title. Well, well, when it actually comes out, we'll have to yeah, have you it's, back. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not out yet, but but it will be in theory forthcoming February twenty twenty two. Could be okay. a little earlier, could be a little later. I don't oh, okay. know. But uh, but it is going to be called Model Minority Masochism. Uh, what's the subtitle? It's uh, Performing the Cultural Politics of Asian American Masculinity. Mm. so um nice yeah so so thank you all thank you both so much it's been such a pleasure oh yeah and, uh, this has been an amazing conversation so keep up the good work guys. oh thanks so all much right. to kill yeah um and um wait did you want to say something peter nope okay yeah so we'll do our um well i'll just wrap up yeah so uh this is a free episode of real sankara hours um but again if you want to support the podcast patreon.com slash real sankara hours again patreon.com slash real sankara hours five dollars a month gets you bonus episodes anywhere between a dollar to four dollars a month means you're like an awesome supporter uh and you, you help keep this podcast running um and yeah we got more stuff in store for y'all um but anyway yeah and oh follow us on twitter 
um, at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Um, P- Peter and I are a lot more cynical when it comes to Twitter, but follow <laughs> Twitter is just um, it's it's a shit. Well, show. one day one day we'll get back to tweeting. I don't yeah, know at yeah. some point. Yeah, but um, <laughs> definitely if you want to stay up to date with the podcast, our tw- uh, the podcast Twitter account is is good to follow. So at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Um, and then, yeah, we're on Patreon. We're also, I mean, you know, SoundCloud as well. Um, SoundCloud.com slash Real Hours. So, you know, uh, if you if you like this conversation, um, you know, follow us. Uh, become a patron if you want more bonus episodes. And, yeah, that's that. We'll do our normal sign out. Keep the faith. And stay dangerous. Peace, y'all. See ya.